This morning we continue to look at, or finish first, or Second Timothy rather, we finally come to the conclusion of this book. And if, if you've read ahead and you've looked at this and you're wondering how in the world this ties into uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, no fear, over the next two and a half hours you're going to find out. I'm kidding, of course. Uh, one, of the, one of the final things, the final things, and, and if you ever look at Paul's greetings and you, and you really want to get the sense of what they're mainly about, what, what are they really driving at? Of course, they're very practical. They're saying their goodbyes. Uh, he's wrapping up the letter. He's given maybe a final overview of this is what we've covered and this is how we need to move forward. But one of the things that you find here is just this very subtle reminder to endure, to persevere. And I think when you look at his letters, a lot of the times, knowing the dangers that we face in the world, whether spiritual or physical, the letter is built on being faithful, and as he wraps it up, it's just this final call to endure. And this is not just peculiar to Paul, even. This would be probably pretty prolific in the New Testament. Uh, the book of Revelation is all about enduring. And so when we, when we look at this final, these final remarks, there is this subtle idea here that just says, hey, believer in Christ, brother or sister, endure to the end. Now, how does that tie in with the supper? Well, when we pause here in just a few moments to take the supper together, what we are doing is, as you've often heard me say, we're reaffirming our faithfulness. We're reaffirming our faith, rather, in Christ. We're reaffirming that we live in promise with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're telling each other, I'm in promise with Christ, and you're in promise in Christ, and so we're in relationship together. So what we're saying to each other is, by God's grace, I endure. And that's exactly what Paul is driving us toward this morning. In these final few greetings, as we, as we look at this, Paul is throwing out some names, and these names should never, never just go right over our heads or go in and out, because these names are valuable. He could have mentioned any name. He could have mentioned any people, and yet he chose to mention certain people. And so what we are reminded of, especially in issues where Paul is being thankful for those people, we're reminded of saints who endured and were faithful. And so this morning, let's turn our attention now there. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're just looking at the last four verses of the chapter that bring this letter to a, a close. Paul's given his final greetings here, but they have value for us this morning. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Tromphius who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for this very brief paragraph, this brief word, and Thank you for the truth therein. Thank you for the table before us as we prepare our minds and hearts to receive from you. But be with us now, I pray. Use this transforming power to draw us closer to the cross, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Last week, I spent the great deal of our time together looking at the word talking about hope. And I think that's very important. In fact, I've actually started praying that the Lord would make me supremely hopeful over other things because isn't it easy to despair? Especially when we just, if you just start looking around you, if you read Twitter, if you read the news, if you read any sort of thing that's given you a stream of what's happening in our world, it is easy to despair. And so, what I like about this final greeting is it is it's hopeful. Now, it's hopeful in the face of the fact Paul's about to die. He's about to be executed, and he knows it. But at, to the very end, he is, being, he is, is taking comfort in camaraderie. He's taking comfort in the gospel work going forward. He's taking comfort in the fact that ultimately the message will continue to go out. He's hopeful. If you've ever read the book, The Great Gatsby, the narrator of the book, kind of Nick Carraway, he describes Jay Gatsby in a way that should describe all Christians. He was the most hopeful man I ever met. And, and that's how we should be described. We should be described as some of the most hopeful people that people ever meet. And so when we, we get here, when we get to where we are in verses 19, 20, and 21, well, 22 as well, the, the notion of press on, because by mentioning people in their labors, Paul is saying, despite what is happening to me, the gospel is still going forward. People are still laboring in the fields, and Timothy, you must labor too. Chapel people, we must labor too. That's the idea. So this, this call is to press on. And so when we're looking here, this brief paragraph, there's the, the primary idea is relatively straightforward and simple. The church must persevere in the gospel. The church must persevere in the gospel. Now, that sounds maybe like a terribly obvious statement, but when we're starting to read people who identify themselves with the church and the things that are coming from those people, you're beginning to see a, a nice, neat divide. And I don't mean nice as in it's pleasant. I mean, it's very apparent now. It's, it's becoming more and more and more apparent. What will divide people from people is one concept, and it's truth. Even people who might make the same profession. And so when we say that the church must persevere in the gospel, we mean the true, biblical, uh, inspired gospel that was delivered to Paul, that Paul delivered on, and that those people delivered on, and that we have in our hands today. Not some altered gospel, not some altered message that fits in with our culture, that fits in with the ethic of culture, but the biblical, true, Christ-inspired, spirit-on-fire gospel. That gospel that sets us apart from other people, that sets us apart from other religions, that sets us apart from all things. So, Brad, you keep using that word. What do you mean by that? The gospel. Well, my favorite verse in Scripture to explain the gospel is found in 2 Corinthians. God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we become the righteousness of God. And so our deadness is swapped for his life, and his life becomes the dominating factor. His truth becomes the primary principle for how I live and move and talk and relate. In other words, we are bound now by the body and the blood. We are bound by those things to live in the light of Scripture. So the church must persevere in the gospel. Yes, 
It is a horribly, or it is a terribly obvious statement, but one that needs repeating again and again. And so when we think about us as believers, we're in this call to press on. What does faithfulness look like? Faithfulness for us, faithfulness looks a lot like perseverance, right? Not even, so not people who are perfect and have all the answers and have it all together, but the people who keep getting back up when they fall down and moving to the cross, moving to and in the kingdom. When we see people in Scripture, who are the ones that are most striking to us? Yes, I love the story of Joseph. Joseph is it's a fantastic story. It was one of the first uh, biblical narratives when I was in Teen Challenge that just captured my mind and heart. And I love Daniel, and I love all the, all the and David. But when you start looking at all these people, Moses, Noah, Abraham, all these people, prophets, they're flawed people. They're people who weren't perfect, but what did they do? They kept on following after Yahweh, who said, come to me. The same is true with the disciples. The same is true with the apostle Paul. The same is true of you and me. What does it mean for us to be faithful, beloved of God? It means that we stay on the path, that we stick to it. And that, as the proverb says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. And so, yes, there is a lot of stumbling in the faithful life, but faithfulness is defined by how we respond in those stumbling moments. Because we can choose to stay down, we can choose to wander in the wilderness, or we can get back up by the power of Jesus Christ and keep walking in the direction being led by the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at these final words, how do we help each other persevere? We get into community. We bind ourselves together. We've been talking a lot about that lately, and I'm not going to depart from it because Paul doesn't depart from it at the end of this letter, so we're bound to follow Paul where he's leading us. This Christian community, we're bound together by Christ, and guess what? We need each other. You need me, I need you, and you need the people around you because every one of us have unique gifts and sets of things that God has given us that help one another walk and press on to faithfulness. There are people who come around me that I need, primarily Rachel, my wife, my, my, my most trusted counselor, but then there are other circles beyond that where I need people. I need Richard in my life. I need our elders in my life and other of you who are friends who speak into my life. And guess what? You need me more than I need you. I'm kidding. It's a joke. If you're visiting, it is a joke. I just, it is a joke. I do not really think that. I do not think that. I just wanted to make sure you're paying attention. We need each other equally, right? We need each other equally. And, we, and this table is that reminder of that. You know, so we're going to come later, and Richard is going to instruct us to, to receive the elements, but he's going to have us wait to remind us that we're not individuals here. We're part of a family. And so when we come together to, to affirm our faith together, to eat the bread and drink the cup, we're going to do those things together because we are a community of people and we need each other. Paul begins here, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Now, uh, in case you're wondering, Prisca and Aquila, Aquila did not get a, a new wife with an eerily similar name to his former wife. 
Prisca and Priscilla are the same people. Prisca and Priscilla, Prisca, Priscilla. Prisca is the variant spelling of the name, perhaps even a nickname that she was known by. But either way, Priscilla and Aquila, who instructed Apollos, this, these are the same people that you often find mentioned in the context of the Apostle Paul. And so they're mentioned many times with Paul and many times in the New Testament, and every time you see them, they're engaged in something, in some work or act of faithfulness, proclamation, instruction. Now, it's interesting that Prisca or Priscilla is mentioned first. Be easy to pass over that, and the question is, is why? In the ancient world, it would have been much more natural to consider Aquila first, and so the question that scholars deal with is why? Why this flip-flop of dealing with Prisca or uh, listing Priscilla first. And this is where we have to go back to the roots of Christianity, honor women. So often we're looked at as the religion who wants to bring suppression because we expect women to submit. And wives should submit to their husbands, as the Scripture says. But it's also we have here from the ancient pen of Paul in, in the first century A.D., given this woman this particular honor. Because there's, there's, there's some likelihood, given the fact that Aquila was a tent maker and could provide funds, and which freed uh, Priscilla to engage in missionary acts and teaching and instruction. Now, this was all done in the proper way, but what I want for us to see is that Paul is reminding us that men and women have value in the kingdom of God, not just men and then some women. They're equal in the eyes of God. But you know what I want for us to grab here? Those things are important, and they're true. At the end of Paul's life, as he's signing off, you know, this is, of course, now this is my, me uh, pouring into this. Paul envisions them with a smile because Pris, greet Prisca and Aquila because those two are faithful. Greet them. Tell them hello. Pass on my regards. Because I know that what they're doing, whatever they're doing, they're laboring faithfully in the kingdom. When we think about that, this is a picture of the Christian life. When people think of us, one of the things they should think about are faithfulness or, or perseverance or endurance or, or people who do what we're called to do by laboring well in the positions that God has put us in. But he doesn't stop there. So greet Pris uh, Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Now, if you think of his name, you remember Paul's letter to Philemon. Anisiphorus sounds very similar to Anisimus, and they both are, have a similar meaning. The name of Anisiphorus means bringer of help, and you don't have to turn there with me, but he's already mentioned him in this letter. Uh, he says in chapter 1, verse 16, "'May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me.'" And was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. What a testimony. What a testimony to this brother and his house. He is one who has refreshed Paul. How did he refresh Paul? Well, one of the ways he did is very simple, quite simple indeed. He searched high and low while Paul was in prison until he found him. Beloved, can you, 
Can we appreciate just the, simpli- the simplicity and the beauty of that? His ministry to Paul was to find him when he was in prison and be a companion, be a friend, refresh him, encourage him, love him. There is some speculation by mentioning the ha- household of Onesiphorus and not Onesiphorus himself that he was dead, but we can't say for certain, and it doesn't matter. But what does matter is the testimony that this man uh, has earned in the eyes of Paul. It was a testimony of love and faithfulness. To the very end, to the very end of Paul's life, he had been a source of love and service. And when we think about that type of love and service, what inspires it? That's not going to come naturally to you and me. We are naturally very selfish creatures. We're going to choose what we love and what makes us happy. But see, when Christ comes and liberates us from the power of sin and death, it also liberates us from that selfishness. Anisiphorus and so many others, they laid aside their selves out of love and sacrifice, the love and sacrifice that has been inspired by Christ, and it compelled them to love and sacrifice for each other. I guarantee you that a Roman prison cell was not a place that any decent person ever wanted to be for any reason. And yet we find them seeking out Paul, and this is here, seeking out Paul, going to him in his lowest moments and saying, you're not alone. Beloved of Christ, what is on display before us is exactly what Christ has done for us, came to us in our lowest moment and said, my son, my daughter, you are not alone. And he gave himself for us. And so we see this replicated again and again in the New Testament. So when I see that Christians are throwing stones at each other and and playing what I've often called academic battleship, trying to one-up each other, it doesn't compute with the Bible. Now, granted, we have to correct error. This is not a time to not correct error, but beloved, we also have to love and there's, there's a time for correction, there's a time for rebuke, there's a time for encouragement, and all those are necessary. So no, we don't love at all costs, but we choose love in every turn. When we look at this list, he goes on, so we have Priscilla and Aquila, we have the household of Anisiphorus, then he mentions Erastus who remained at Corinth, and Trompius, who was ill at Miletus. Now, Erastus, he's mentioned in Romans, and he's, there's an Erastus mentioned in Romans, there's an Erastus mentioned in Acts. Are they the same? Well, no, it's hard to say. And it doesn't matter, really, because this Erastus mentioned in Corinth, Paul mentions this just to say, hey, our brother Erastus is serving faithfully at Corinth. And in a, in, a, in a way, this would be an encouragement, hey, continue to pray for him. He's doing the work in Corinth because if you've read First and Second Corinthians, you know that that's no easy work, all the stuff that Paul dealt with there. And then he goes on to Tromphius, who he left ill at Miletus. Just so you know, Miletus is very near to Ephesus. Tromphius is mentioned in Acts 20 and Acts 21. And I love the note here, it's, and the, the note should not just be skipped over. He left him ill or sick at Miletus. Now, isn't it interesting 
that Paul is credited with having been a part of people being healed, that people in God's kingdom and, and workers were healed, and yet this Tromphius is left ill. And we're not sure with what, and we're not sure why. But you know what it's a reminder of? You know what this is a reminder of? Where did Paul place Tromphius? In the hands of God. I don't love that Christian wife has, is ill. In fact, it, unless the Lord intervenes, it's terminal. His gardener prayed for him. But here's what I do know. As grieving as it is, as sad as it is, and as much as I don't like it, he is in the Lord's hands. The Lord's people are in the Lord's hands. And when we see Paul in his day talking about faithful brothers who are ill, and maybe they'll die. Maybe the Lord will preserve them. But this is where the joy and the hope for Christians comes. And this notion that, yes, Christian is ill. Yes, some of you may be ill, but I would rather be ill in the hands of the Lord than well outside of His, outside of his grasp. One day in the house of the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. Give me the one day. Now, in my flesh, I don't always feel that way. So don't, don't think I'm going around the house and I'm some spiritual giant at home. I'm not. I'm weak. I say and do stupid things, and I doubt the Lord often. When I come back around to things like this, I'm reminded of the beauty of what it means that we are in the Lord's hands. Tromphius was in the Lord's hands. And you know what? Tromphius was ill, and his illness did not hinder his faithfulness. Our illness does not have to hinder our faithfulness. It may hinder what we can do, Oh, but beloved, we can pursue, or we can persevere, rather, in the Lord. And we can do so with hope. We can do so with humility. We can do so leaning on other people and do all those things. Lean on other people. Lean on the Lord. Be weak in our illnesses. But we can persevere. Why? Not because it's in us, but because of whose hands we're in. We're in the Lord's hands. He moves on. And I love this. This is the transparency of the apostle. Do your best to come before winter. Now, why does he say that? Well, in the ancient world, winter made for some very hard travel. In fact, a lot of the uh, routes, both land and sea, would be shut down because it's precarious. What is Paul telling Timothy? I want you here sooner rather than later. The aging, ailing, condemned apostle wants his friend. We talked about this last week. And so there's, some, there's, some, there's a simple beauty here, the simple beauty of relationships forged in the power of the gospel and how impactful they can become. When we think about this relationship of Paul and Timothy, this is Paul's final request of Timothy. The final request he makes of Timothy, you're reading the last request he made of Timothy that we have in print. Do your best to come to me. It's humbling. It stirs my soul because what you're looking on display here, what, you're, what we're seeing on display here is a love and a loyalty inspired by Christ. And so when we think about the Lord's Supper and the blood that was shed, it's that blood that binds us together. We're all under the banner of the blood of Christ. And it gives us this opportunity to love like Christ loves, 
to be a Timothy or to be a Paul or to be a whomever, to whomever we can, that we might love well. And so that one of the enduring reminders or one of the enduring testimonies that we have is that we loved well. Do you have people like that in your life? People that when you think about them, they loved well. I do. And so those, those are the people I tend to remember. You've heard me maybe say before, why do, we, why do we remember Boaz and Ruth? They weren't warriors. They didn't do miracles. They didn't single-handedly, like Samson, defeat the Philistines. They didn't rip giant, our lions apart. They didn't slay giants. You know what they did? They loved. They loved Yahweh, and they loved each other, and they sacrificed. And it is a powerful reminder of the people who are remembered. In the kingdom of God, the best testimony we could have is to be genuine lovers of other people and of the Lord, but reverse the order of the Lord and other people. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends his greetings. This greetings of, of, of Eubulus and, and Pudens, which is a very funny name to me, Linus, Claudia, all the brothers, I mean, at this point, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and the rest of them at this point, and, and just the rest of them. They all send their greetings. The greetings of the saints. Simple reminder, at the risk of being repetitive, people are essential to our lives and ministry. And these are not just any people. These are God's people, people that God has placed in your life and my life, people that maybe sometimes we dodge. Maybe sometimes we get annoyed not realizing how much we might annoy them and they dodge us. It's always funny to think that we're trying to dodge and maybe people are dodging. I'm, I'm going off track here. This is a really sweet message until we got to that point. So I'm going to just rewind that back up and say people are vital to our lives and ministry. They were to Paul, and they are to us. But by mentioning these names, you know, beloved, there's something beautiful here. There's something beautiful and subtle that I want for us to grab, to, to grab onto. What does the gospel save us to do? It saves us to reach people with the gospel. Very easy to start wanting to do battle with philosophies, and we should, and there's a time for that. But sometimes we can equate gospel advancement with killing ideas, and there are some ideas that need to be dead. But really what the gospel is designed to do is go for people and to save people and to redeem people and to draw people in so that then they can go and under the power of the Holy Spirit combat the ideas. We do need to deal with the philosophies behind people. There, we do. So please hear me. I'm telling you, we do. But what the gospel wants to do is capture the people who can then go and do battle for the glory of the Lord. So if you're here this morning and you're like, yes, Brad, I believe the gospel. I believe in the gospel. Then brother or sister, that same message has called you to bear arms in the kingdom of God, to stand and be a conduit or an instrument to capture other people for the glory and by the power of Christ so that they can in turn do the same thing. And when we capture hearts, or when God captures hearts through the ministry of His church, 
we begin to do damage to the philosophies behind the wicked. So in their imprecatory psalms, we're praying for God's judgment to fall. Let's start praying for conversions, converted hearts, and we will see the Lord do immeasurably more than all we can ask or think. How does Paul end this little letter before we take the supper? The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So he started off kind of extolling the Christian community. Now he's ending this talking about the community that Timothy and we have with the Lord. So be with one another, but the Lord also be with your spirit. That's where Paul goes with this. And when we take the Lord's Supper together, that's exactly what we're doing. We're reminding each other that the Lord is with us. We are with and in the Lord. And so when he says, the Lord be with your spirit, what is, what is the secret in the Christian life? What is the secret to contentment? And I'm going to use this word that's very prevalent in our culture, not a very Christian word, but we're, we're, going, to, we're going to reclaim it and redeem it. What is the secret in the Christian life to both contentment and success? Contentment and success. And I don't mean success monetarily. I don't mean it in clout or social status. I mean victory day to day. What is the secret to that? It's the Emmanuel principle, God with us. The Lord be with your spirit. Timothy, how will you prevail? How will the church prevail? Not on our own, not by, by clever arguments, not by anything that we build in and of ourselves, but by the Lord's presence with us. And Jesus, by his very life and ministry, is God with his people. The incarnation is Jesus with his people. So why, do we have, why can Trumpius have confidence even in hard circumstances? Why can we believe better for Christian and Kathy and in one another? Why can we stand with one another in confidence though the world falls away? Because the Lord is with his people. And Jesus wins I'm going to spoil the end for you. He wins. And you can go read the book of Revelation, and at the end of it, you'll say, yep, he does win. He wins indeed. But you know what I love about this? When I was reading The Lord Be With Your Spirit, it actually made me think about Moses. When God tells Moses to go, and Moses says, Lord, if you don't go with me, I am not going. Go with me. Brother or sister in the Lord this morning, we need Christ to go with us. If Christ does not go with us, we shouldn't go. So we go where Christ goes and with Christ. He wraps it up. Grace be with you. He began this letter with grace. I'm going to read it just for effect. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord. He ends, grace be with you. You know what's interesting here? And maybe your Bible will footnote this. Some will. The Lord be with your spirit, singular. Grace be with you, plural. This you there is plural. So grace be with you all. So this is a, not just a parting benediction to Timothy. Paul understood supremely who was going to be looking at this letter. God's people. So when it says grace be with you, Chapel, it is grace be with you and our other brothers and sisters around us this morning who are meeting to come under the Word of God, faithful churches. Grace be with God's people. He began with grace. He ends with grace. What is God's greatest grace to you and me? What is God's greatest grace? 
It's on display right here in symbolic form, the body and the blood of Christ. Why do we go forward in victory? Why do we stand with hope? Why do we have confidence? Why can we be bold? Why is the truth greater than anything else? Because Jesus gave his body and poured out his blood that we could be redeemed. And so we stand here redeemed this morning. What do you need in life more than anything else? The grace of the living God. And so when we think about endurance, we endure by the grace and life of Christ. Paul endured by the grace and life of Christ. The very last thing he says to Timothy is, Jesus be with you. And Timothy, you and the church, grace be with you. Paul understood. We need the indwelling presence of Christ, and we need His grace. Beloved, we're in a moment in history. I'm not going to say it's never happened before because Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. But we're in a moment in history where it's our time. It's our opportunity to now stand, to not take a back seat, to not be silenced, to not sit down, to not try to make nice so that everybody's happy, but to stand for what is right and what is true. And we will not do it. We will not do it if we don't do it in the power of Christ. Or if we do it, we'll do it in a way that brings no glory to Christ and only brings hurt and harm to other people. So as pastor this morning, I'm challenging myself and I'm challenging you. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to stand and stand boldly, to stand in love, to stand in humility, to stand in the grace of God, but to stand nonetheless. And when we link arms and we stand with one another, you see, we begin to bear burdens. And when we bear burdens, we honor Christ. And so this morning, as we come to receive the supper here in just a few moments, remember that the body and blood of Christ enable us to endure. Please pray with me. Father, thank you this morning for what's in front of us. God, not only what's in front of us at this table, but what's ahead of us in life. Lord, none of us know the future. We don't know what's going to happen when we walk out of these doors. So moment by moment, second by second, give us the wisdom, the strength, the boldness, and the hope to stand for you. Evil days are behind and evil days are ahead, but we serve a God who is able to break the walls of evil down and for truth to shine through. Oh, Father, may we be the light of Christ to the world. May we be the saltiness of the gospel to the lost and broken. And may you continue to draw us and lead us home, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.